in speaking to a doctor, he, he asked me how I felt. And I said, I feel like I'm on an airplane that's about to crash. He looked me in the eyes, said, Stephen, it already crashed. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, are not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. I'm going to keep trying. Now, we are talking about suicide. This may not be a good fit for everybody. Please take that into account before you listen. I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to share your story, I would love to talk. Please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com or on Facebook and Twitter at SuicideNoted. And as always, I want to thank all of our attempt survivors who have joined me here to talk about their attempt as well as their recovery since we started in July and everybody who has listened over that time as well. Thanks so much. If you'd like to make a financial contribution, I'll put that information in the show notes. We have a Patreon page. Another way you could help in addition to listening, which I really appreciate, is to rate, review, and or subscribe if you listen on Apple. It really helps people find it, and I think there's a lot of people that may need to find it. Today, I am talking with Stephen. Stephen lives in Illinois, and he is a suicide attempt survivor. There it is. Hey, Stephen. Hey. Where are you, by the way? Where do you live? Springfield, Illinois. Home of the claim to fame. What is Springfield, Illinois known for? Abraham Lincoln. There you go. Thanks for doing this. Being open yeah, to talking. My yeah. pleasure. This is a podcast in which, in which I talk with suicide attempt survivors. So do you have one attempt or more than one? I wouldn't even really call it an attempt mm-hmm. before the one that did happen on November 4th of 2004. But it was more of a strong, strong desire to to die that day. But I never actually did anything. But it was one of those, my kids were real young at the time. My wife and I worked opposite shifts and it was in the evening and she called. Then you didn't know who was on the other end of the line. I was like, well, okay, the phone's ringing. Dead people don't answer the phone. So I'm not answering the phone. One of my kids picked up the phone it was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I got on the phone. It was my wife. And uh, I don't think I said a single word. Hmm. She's talking to me and I'm just like, <gasps> and she's like, oh, shit, I'm coming home. <laughs> so she knew something. And, and she wrong. finds me. I'm in the basement. I'm just back and forth, walk, just pacing back and forth in our basement saying, oh, God, oh, Jesus, just let me die. And I'm just repeating that over and over and over and over again. Hmm. That was my first hospitalization, but 
it wasn't an attempt. It was just one of those. I just want to die right now. And when was that? Probably 92, 93, somewhere in there. Is, was there something that was going on that particular day where it got that extreme? There was just a lot, a lot of stress at that point. Our, our second child was really young. He was probably still in a crib. There was just a lot of, a lot of pressure mm-hmm. at that point. Your wife came home. You guys talk. You remember what happened after she arrived? They got me to stop pacing and got me to lay down on the couch. Uh, another friend came over. They decided I needed to be hospitalized. And Did you agree? I spent a couple of days in the hospital. And Was that helpful at all? Was, yeah, yeah, it was. And I, then I was able to, to pull out of that and discovered a lot of what I was going through was pretty much self-inflicted that I was, a lot of it had to do with finances. And, you know, people were, you know, giving me some perspective on, I was like, oh, we're going to be on the streets any second, you know, and they're like, no, you're not even close. You know, Mm -hmm. getting that perspective was like, okay, I took a deep breath and we moved on with life. Mm. And that was the early nineties, right? Yeah. It sounds like, and if I'm ever wrong here or I'm off, let me know. You're obviously making it through the nineties. I'm sure there were like for most humans, probably ups and downs. Oh Yeah. We arrived to end of 2004 where something where you actually do attempt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird that it's on both ends of the 90s. Career success actually took off after that. So it was like, oh, yeah, we got it going now. I was working for a public utility company, uh, was able to get quite a quick succession of promotions. I went from a part time janitor to a full time janitor to a courier to uh, working in information technology. And then I was able to get into what they call production control, where you would set up the processing for that night and generate bills or checks or whatever they were spitting out that night. About that time, I'm like, okay, I'm done climbing. I'm just happy right here where I'm at. Literally a week later, they're like, we're merging. I'm thinking, okay, whatever. It might mean relocating, whatever. I was like, I had been with the company for 14 years. I'm like, I'm just, I'm a lifer. You know, whatever happens, happens. I'm I'm on board. Send me wherever you need to send me. And then it was, no, you're not going. They called it a merger of equals. That was the biggest lie ever. The other company we merged with was huge. Mm-hmm. We were eh, middle and they, they just ate us up. So people lost their jobs and you were. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. What happens? What happens next? I kind of cop an attitude and I'm like, all right, I'll show you. I'll just pick up where I left off with another company. And that just never happened. It Mm. just never happened. I had all this success with no experience. I've got this experience now and I can just pick up somewhere else doing the same thing. I know other companies, you know, they have to do this too. Mm -hmm. I could just never find it. And it was just failure. After failure, after failure, not to jump too far ahead here, but in 2004, it was like, I would rather die than fail one more time. Yeah. I'm sick of failing. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of those things in a merger. It's like, who do you blame? I had it going and it just got ripped out from under me. Yeah. Out of your control entirely. Yeah. Control is a big word in my story. You think you control your circumstances and you really don't. You don't have as much control over circumstances as you think you do Mm. in a lot of cases. Yeah. But 
you don't want to go to the opposite side where you're like, I have no control of my life at all either. Sure. You know, that, that's the opposite extreme. It's a tough balance, man. And up until that point in your life, when you think about your childhood, your teenage years and beyond, like, were you doing okay? Or were you like me, for example, when I think back, I struggle, you know, I had like ups and downs, but my downs are pretty down. Some people I talk to on this podcast who have attempted and they're like, no, my childhood was good. Everything was fine. Things changed when I got older. How was it for you? Was it mixed? Everything was good until the pressures of adult life. We talked about that, got, got past that, got mm -hmm. on track, something completely out of my control and just yeah. destroyed it. A friend I was talking to said it was kind of like here in the Midwest, we have a lot of tornadoes. It's kind of like your house is there and all you got all your, all your ducks in a row. And the next day you're looking at an empty plot of land mm -hmm. and you're like, it's just gone. You just got to start completely over. The problem you know, going with that metaphor, the problem was I was never able to rebuild. Every time I would start to rebuild, it would just fall down again. And then that just gets frustrating. Yeah. Maybe this pressure for men too, to feel like support. Mm -hmm. carry your kids you have kids at this point right and yeah why that was a lot of it it was like this isn't just affecting me i'm dragging my wife and kids down with me because i'm not able to to rebuild i'm not doing my part to rebuild our lives when you go back to 92 between 92 and 2004 i know you went to the hospital did you do anything else sort of like let's say therapy or medication or other things to try to feel okay or be okay not on that one so much. Like I said, it was financial stressors, but it was also like job stressors because the job I had, which I eventually was like, yeah, this is where I want to be, mm -hmm. was one where it was either completely right or it was completely wrong. If you got something wrong, you were getting a call at three o'clock in the morning saying, this didn't work. You have to fix it. And so there was a lot of pressure on myself to be perfect at work. Once I got over that, I was okay. The funny story that got me over that was, you know, I was working through that and trying not to relive the whole workday again at night saying, okay, what did I miss? What am I going to get called about? You know, I finally stopped thinking about that stuff. Shortly after that, like I come into work, I'm thinking, oh, okay, everything's fine. Just another normal workday. And I got this programmer sitting at my desk and I'm like, oh, that's not a good sign. Mm. And she's like, you screwed up the executive payroll. I was like, well, I guess I can't top that one. After that, it was like, I'm just going to do my job and not worry about it because I'm not going to do anything worse than screw up the executive payroll. And, you know, we got through it that day and got everything back normal again and survived the worst thing I could mess up. So yeah, I'm not too worried about it now. Yeah. And then that's, you know, when I settled in and I was able to, to do my job and not not take it home with me. And yeah, this is going to work. I, I can handle this. So what happened in uh, 2004 where things changed? I was about five years into working with an insurance company in their IT department. At the utility company, there was an atmosphere of we're all in this together. It was, it was very much a team-oriented work environment. Mm -hmm. at the insurance company, it was completely the opposite. Mm. It was almost like other people in the department or in not, not necessarily in the department you're working in, but 
other departments that you would work with, they would almost want you to screw up because that would make them look better. And that was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard of in my life, especially mm-hmm. after being with a company that was just the opposite for 14 years. Yeah. And I was like, I do not get this competition mentality here, but there was just, it was just like, it was so entrenched in that company mm-hmm. that I felt like I was working by myself. I ended up, I was working evenings. It was basically almost back to the tape jockey position again. Where, you know, you were doing things that were necessary, but you were kind of the grunt of the department. And it wasn't real great because my wife was working days. I was working nights. We had kids. It wasn't really great for family life. And an opportunity came up to get a job that was what I felt was similar to what I was doing when I was happy at the at the utility company. Well, that was the biggest mistake ever. Mm. It turned out. This gal, I do not know what her problem was, but she wasn't training me for anything. She gave me enough information to be dangerous, and then she left. She was retiring. I told my supervisors about it. They're like, oh, we'll, you know, we'll get through it together. We have this other lady that was her backup, and she'll help you out. And between management and her backup and me, We had enough information to be dangerous, but it was my position. So all the pressure is falling on me as that progressed. You know, I would be like, okay, I think I've got it. And then something would happen. No, I don't have it And back and forth. And they said, we're getting rid of this that you're struggling with because it's so old. Anyway, there's no support for it. And I kept hanging on to that promise. This is going away. We're replacing it. I can learn something from the ground up. That thing never did get replaced. Then I'm struggling through day to day. I'm making it through day to day, but it's, it's no fun. Mm -hmm. And they bring, bring in this idea that we're going to have you take over what's called FTP file transfer protocol. And basically it was the mainframe computer is going to talk to the PCs. Well, that was a joke because the PC people had their world. And they didn't want to share their knowledge. So that made that extremely difficult. But I'm trying to learn this product. I I eventually go to my boss and say, listen, the PC side is not cooperating at all. Just send me to some training on this so I can make this thing do what you want it to do. And maybe I'll feel some job, job satisfaction if I can get this thing up and running and have it doing what we want it to do. And they're like, okay, so they, they send me to training. The only thing that training teaches me is that we have the completely wrong product for what the company wants to do. So I bring that information back and basically management says, too bad. We've got too much time and money invested in it. Make it work. I'm like, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It won't work. I had a conversation with the people that make this product. No. I said, we need a backhoe and we have a garden trowel. It's not going to work. Nope. You have to make this work. The day that I left work and tried to end my life, I was supposed to introduce this product to our accounting department. And I'm like, the only thing I know about this product is that it's the wrong one. Mm. I am not going to lie to these people. And I was like, 
no, I'm done. I've had it. If it was just that one thing, it probably wouldn't have caused that. But put another five years of failure that was ahead of that on it. Sure. You're done. You're toast. You quit? Yeah. I didn't quit my job. I quit life. I've been, I've been thinking about it. And I kept waiting for that. Something's going to change. Something's going to change. Something's going to change. Yeah. And then I hit that impasse. And I was like, nope, nothing's going to change. I'm done. Did your wife have any idea that you were thinking about it for two years? No. So on that day, when you left your job, what happens? What do you do? Where do you go? Actually, it starts the night before. It was a Wednesday night. We were in the habit of going to church on Wednesday nights. She was in the choir. She had choir practice on Wednesday nights. One of the weird parts of my story, too, is you would think, and this was a small church, you know, people knew each other and things like that. You would think that I would be comfortable there saying, hey, I'm really in a bad spot. But I was actually the least comfortable there because I was expecting a negative response or a pray harder, hang in there, whatever, you know, those type of responses that do you absolutely no good whatsoever. So she's in choir practice and I'm basically just avoiding people because I've been thinking about this long and hard. And I know this meeting's coming up the next day. I know this presentation's coming up the next day. I'm basically in this little, they called it a little library, but it wasn't no bigger than a walk-in closet. So I'm just kind of tucked in there. One of the other members of the church was looking for his kids and he just happened to open the door and stick his head in there and say, hey, how you doing? Have you seen my kids? And I said, not good, not good at all. He said, oh, it'll get better. Shut the door and left. Fake it through that night like I've been faking it for the last two years. And really, my thought was, don't even go to work. Just just go find a place and end it. For whatever reason, I end up going to work. I get to my desk. And I literally, I call it freezing. I just sat there motionless. I didn't realize it, but from the reaction of the person on the other side of the cubicle wall, I must have been hyperventilating. I'm sure it was attempt an attempt at comic relief, but it didn't work. She said, I'm going to get you some balloons and put all that blow into some good work, to some good use. It didn't do anything. I was just still just frozen. The phone rings. Hey, you ready for this presentation? Yeah, yeah, I'm ready. I hang up and I leave. I'm like, nope, not doing it. Go out to my car. I sit in my car for like two hours in the parking lot, just thinking. What are you thinking about? What to do? Mm -hmm. What's the answer? And it's kind of funny because in IT, there is this thing called an endless loop. In a computer program, basically what an endless loop does is you never tell it to stop. Mm -hmm. It just keeps going and going and going and going. Well, basically, my mind was in an endless loop. Mm -hmm. And it was going between if I leave my job, this is what happens. If I don't leave my job. This is what happens. Mm -hmm. And they both suck. Eventually, it was just like, what snapped me out of that was, I don't want somebody wandering over here and saying, hey, what's up? So I drive away. I'm not even thinking at all. I end up on 55 North, which out of Springfield, Illinois, goes to Chicago, Illinois. This is one of these times where it's like, my mind is not working at all. Mm -hmm. Because my mind's thinking, you need to get somewhere remote 
and I'm heading for Chicago. What could be more opposite? <laughs> okay. We have the Shawnee National Forest south of us. If, mm-hmm. I, if, I, if I had gone south, that was remote. But I'm already heading north. I'm past Lincoln, Illinois. One of my best friends works in Lincoln. He was so pissed off when he found out that I drove right past Lincoln wanting to die, and I didn't pull him into it. Mm-hmm. But at that point, I'm like, it's too late for that. That's, that's, that's way done over with. So I just randomly start making turns, just turn it off the highway. Oh, this looks like it goes to the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Just making turns. And I finally find this arc of gravel that's like between two fields. I'm like, I'm just going to pull off of this, onto this arc of gravel. Oh, the one thing I forgot to mention was when I left work and what made me do this, who knows? I grabbed plastic bags, rubber bands, and tape, whatever was at hand, I guess. And so I get there, I start pulling these rubber bands over my neck, around my neck. I'm in the middle of nowhere at this point. I have no idea where I'm at. Parked your car somewhere, you're alone. Mm -hmm. There's just this little narrow country road between these two fields, no houses in sight, Mm -hmm. little place where you could pull off the road. So I'm pulling these on. Here is where I'm not sure if it's reality or if it's hallucination. I really, to this day, cannot tell you. I pull in there and trying to strangle myself with these rubber bands, pulling more and more and more over my neck to constrict my air. You know, a car pulls in and I'm like, oh, you have to kid me. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to kind of kick the seat back and pretend like I'm just resting my eyes or whatever, you know, and try to cover up what's going on up here. And and they leave and I'm like, oh, okay. It's like, I'm going to put this bag over my head and tape it up or rubber band it on. And about that time, another car pulls in. Do you mind people? I'm trying to kill myself here. Literally that thought goes through my head. That car leaves and I'm like, okay. And then I hear footsteps by my car. This is not working. I sit the seat back up. I look at myself in the rearview mirror. I got all these red dots around my eyes now. Okay, this isn't time. Either I find a new place, new method, something. This this isn't working here. Or I go back to Springfield. It's all out in the open. I decide to go back to Springfield because at this point, I have had enough time while I'm attempting that in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I'm finally beyond it just being about me and my situation. Okay, there's a bigger picture here. Me facing up to what I've been hiding all this time since the merger Mm -hmm. and all the wrong responses I've had to the setbacks saying, my whole I can handle it attitude has come back and royally bitten me in the ass <laughs> is worth it. Mm-hmm. Problem is, I have no sense of direction. I have no idea where I'm at. So, and there's no GPS back then, right? No GPS. Right. 2004. You didn't have that. So, miracle number one God gets me back to Springfield, gets me back to the SIU. Central Illinois University Department of 
mental health was who I had seen early on when I had the stressors at work and was, you know, having panic attacks at night because I was reliving my day and Mm -hmm. what did I screw up? I decided that was the safest place to go. So I got there. It was a tiny little office, tiny little parking lot. You wouldn't have to walk more than five yards to get in from your car to the building. That was the longest walk I have ever taken in my life. Because the whole time I'm thinking, die, live, die, live, die, live. Which one's worse? You know, (laughs) which one's better? Mm -hmm. I finally get in there. The poor receptionist. She's like, may I help you? And I'm just staring at her. Uh, Are you okay, sir? I'm just staring at her. (laughs) Finally, I was like, I tried to kill myself today. You ain't never seen people move so fast in your life. That's what they do. They were on it. They take care of you? Yeah, they took took me in the back there. It was surreal because same room I'd been in before. Where I'm saying, yeah, I'm good. You know, I, I think we got, I think we're on top of this. Now I'm in this same room and I'm like, I'm not on top of anything. How long did you stay there for? I think I was there very long. You know, they were saying, uh, do you want us to contact anyone? Yeah, let my wife know. So they contacted her. Do you think you need to go to the hospital? No. No, absolutely not. Mm-mm. Not going there. <laughs> Wrong answer, but answer i gave them at the time and they you know basically you know what happened (laughs) they came back in they're like do you want to talk to your wife no i don't want to talk to my (laughs) that came back to haunt me later seriously you didn't want to talk to me i was like it wasn't so much i didn't want to talk to you that was that i couldn't talk to you Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i was like unless you just wanted to hear a lot of sobbing Mm -hmm. that's about what the conversation would have been they decided for me they're like, you sure you don't need to go to the hospital? Yeah, I'm sure I don't need to go to the hospital. Well, we're not so sure about that. There's an ambulance on the way and you're going anyway. They didn't really need to ask you, did they? Right? No. Um, how long were you in that hospital for? I think I was in about a week. Helpful? Yes and no. Uh, the yes part of it was actually an external group that they had come in not the hospital staff itself. But I will say one helpful part was uh, in speaking to a doctor, I said, he, he asked me how I felt. And I said, I feel like I'm on an airplane that's about to crash. He looked me in the eyes, said, Stephen, it already crashed. And that was one of those moments, a turning point moment where it was like, yeah, he's right. Mm. This plane's already down in pieces. How many how many people know about that attempt? How many people know about that attempt? I mean, outside of, you know, doctors and nurses who are treating you, you know, family. Friends. At that time or now? Yeah, both. I mean, obviously at the time, probably couldn't tell many people. You were in a hospital. At that time, of course, you know, family and friends, my church. Oh, they do. They know. Yeah. Yeah. Brenda's going to tell them. <laughs> She's going to tell them. She's going to go to them for support. So they know. Some people that know. I don't know what kind of response she got, really. 
you know, it was mixed. Some people got it. Some people didn't get it. Sure. And that was 17 years ago, if my math is correct. Yeah. So what has helped you to, you're, you're still here. Yeah. Um, writing ended up being really helpful. I ended up writing a book about it. Took 10 years to write the book, but a lot what? of things that writing helped me work through. Yeah. What's the title? Insane Success. Yeah. And then the subtitles from Losing the American Dream to Finding God's Abundant Life. You know, people can read that title differently because, you know, what is the American Dream? What is God's Abundant Life? <laughs> yeah. It's great that you did that, man. Just to do it. Not easy thing to do. Glad it helped. When I was uh, telling my new boss about it, I was like, if it, if it comes out that I was suicidal, I tried to take my life. Is it going to mess up my job that I have now? She answered me with a question and said, why would you want to share that with the whole world? Mm. I don't know. I feel compelled to do that. Yeah. There's people that need to hear it. Anything else help? So writing? The group I told you about. It was called Grow. I don't even know if it exists anymore. Mm -hmm. But this gal came in and she was so perky and going on, on a, a psych floor. And you got this lady that's so excited and full of life. You know, it's just like, man, she is just so opposite of everybody that's on this floor. Mm -hmm. Kind of stands out. Mm -hmm. It's like, I got to check this out when I get out of here if nothing else, just to see if she's like that all the time, or if this is just part of her presentation here. And she was like that all the time. She was a big help. Mm -hmm. I actually ended up being a, a, a leader for a while in, in grow. Nice. So I know you're, you have a wife and children. Mm -hmm. You're part of a faith community, a, a yes. church you're employed now. Yes. Yes. Uh, no judgments. I'm just One of the things that was huge and it's, uh, in the book is mm -hmm. basically I had to dump society's definition of what success is, especially for men. Yeah. And say, you know, I can be a success without having the high paying job in the corner office and the, the car and the house and the vacation rental and all that. Oh yeah. Hell yeah. So, and that, that kind of connects to my, the second part of that question, you kind of already answered it is, you had used earlier in our conversation this word about failure, 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 failure. Do you feel like a failure now? I do not feel like a failure now, but a lot of men would look at me and say, your life isn't a is not a success. It would not fall in the success category, but I personally do, do not feel like a failure. Number one, just doing things like this, you know? Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah. Do you think there's any chance that you'll uh, those ideations will come back and you might try again? Or you think you're sort of in the clear now? I don't think there's a 100% guarantee that you can say, no, that's never going to happen. I would have said, no, that's never going to happen the first time. So I do have a lot of safety measures in place now, a lot more open, a, a, a lot less. I have to figure this out on my own. And you start pulling other people in and that that helps with that a lot if you've heard the podcast i always find myself saying you know i'm sure i didn't ask all the questions you may have wanted me to ask so i always sort of end with open-ended kind of what else would you like to share 
probably the biggest difference in my life was where life is focused on what can I get uh, more to what, what can I give? Mm. That's probably the biggest difference in my life right now. Big shift. Yeah. That's good for people to hear too. If they're in a position to sort of embrace it, not everybody is, 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 is giving. Yeah. And then you get more anyway, which is the irony of it all. Isn't it true? Mm -hmm. But you're not ready to hear it until I guess you're ready to hear it. Everyone's in their own place. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. Well, I I, I can only speak for me, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I'm pretty sure your kids and your wife, other people in your community are glad that uh, didn't work out in 2004. You're here. So I appreciate you joining me and, and sharing so openly. And, you know, people hear this stuff and it helps, I think. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you for doing this podcast. My pleasure. Yeah. I just hope you keep doing what you're doing and sharing and writing and, you know, feeling good. And yeah, I've got some opportunities open up, opening up to, uh, to speak to some men's groups. I I think that's really big, you know, with, uh, with men and what is success and what is, what, what, what do we place our, our hope in, in this life? And mine, you know, it was in my, career in my bank account and when that went away it was like oh i don't even know who i am anymore (laughs) so i think that happens to a lot of guys for sure yeah keep doing it man thank you and uh yeah i hope the rest of your your days are good in springfield illinois enjoy the rest of your day thanks again thank you bye-bye take care as always thanks so much for listening and all of your support Special thanks to Stephen up in Illinois. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to share your story, I'd love to talk. Please reach out. Hello at suicidenoted.com or on Facebook or Twitter at Suicide Noted. And remember, if you listen on Apple, rating, reviewing, subscribing, they all really help people find this podcast. And I think there's a lot of people that may need to hear it. Thanks for that. That is all for episode Number 63, stay strong, do the very best you can. I'll talk to you soon.